In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So today we have the fathers of the Fourth Ecumenical Council in Chalcedon, Chalcedon in 451. And uh, we need to talk about the 5th century. Uh, when we were in the Holy Land on that uh, adventure, that pilgrimage, we really learned about the flowering of Christianity during the 5th century. We saw buildings, churches everywhere from the 5th century, including in Petra. I'm just, just ruins of churches everywhere. Jordan, everywhere we went. And the continual spread of Christianity. And under the guidance of the, of the Holy Spirit, the councils that convened in the 5th century, this council, to combat false teachings. Many of those false teachings about our sweetest Lord Jesus and his mother, the Theotokos. But before we do that, talk about the 5th century and that council, I want to tell you about a very important person who was at the 4th Ecumenical Council, um, but uh, reposed 147 years before the council. So hopefully you're not very confused, but I'll back it up and tell you again. I want to tell you about a very important person who reposed 147 years before the 4th Ecumenical Council and how important she was at the 4th Ecumenical Council. So hopefully I have your attention. The holy great martyr Euphemia, the all-praised. That's what we call her. She was the daughter of Christian parents. Her father was a senator. She suffered for Christ in the year 304 in the city of Chalcedon, in the city where they're going to have that council 147 years later. The Chalcedon governor Priscus circulated an order for all the inhabitants and its surroundings to appear at a pagan festival and worship and offer sacrifice to an idol, threatening grave torments for anyone who failed to appear. During the festival, 49 Christians hid in a house where they secretly attended services praising the one true God. The young maiden Euphemia was among those praying in that house. Soon the hiding place of the Christians was discovered, and they were brought before Priscus to answer for themselves. For 19 days, the martyrs were subjected to various tortures and torments, but none of them wavered in their faith, nor consented in any other way to offer sacrifices to the idol or anything else. The governor Priscus, beside himself with rage, not knowing any other way of forcing the Christians to abandon their faith, sent them to trial to the emperor Diocletian. But Priscus kept the youngest of those 49, Euphemia, hoping that she would renounce her faith if she was alone. Along with other attempts at torturing Euphemia, which I won't give you all the gory details, because it's gory, Priscus ordered soldiers to put her in a red-hot oven. This is actually less gory than what I can share with you. That's how bad this was. But the soldiers, seeing two fearsome angels in the midst of the flames, refused to carry out the order and boldly proclaimed that they too were Christians. These soldiers, Victor and Sosthenes, bravely went to their martyrdom. During their execution, they cried out for mercy to God, asking the Lord to receive them into the heavenly kingdom. And a heavenly voice answered their cries, and they entered into eternal glory. St. Euphemia was eventually cast into that fire by other soldiers, but with the help of God, she emerged unharmed. Finally, she was sentenced to be devoured by wild beasts at the circus 
Before her execution, St. Euphemia implored that the Lord deem her worthy to die a violent death. But none of the beasts, having been set loose in the arena, attacked her. Finally, one of the she-bearers gave her a small wound on the leg, and immediately the holy, great, Marty Euphemia, the all-praised, died. Immediately following her martyrdom, an earthquake occurred, and the guards and the spectators ran in terror. St. Euphemia's parents were able to take her body and reverently bury it not far from town. Later, a majestic church was built over her grave, and that's where the meetings of the Fourth Ecumenical Council were held, over her grave in this big basilica they built. So let's talk about the Fourth Ecumenical Council, and I'll share how St. Euphemia participated. She's not, it's not only important, or say this, not, her only importance wasn't just being buried where they had the meetings, 147 years later. That's not the most important part of her participation. All right, something about the council. It was convened because Eutychus, an abbot in a monastery in Constantinople with 300 monks, declared support of Dioscorus, the patriarch of Alexandria, that the two natures of Christ, the divine and the human, had been united to become one, so that Jesus, fully God and fully man, the false teaching was he was that the human part of him got devoured kind of by the godly part of him. And so he wasn't 100% God and 100% man. The two natures of Christ just kind of merged to become, he just had one nature. And it was just the divine nature. He taught the human nature melted into the divine nature just as a drop of honey melts into the sea. Marcion and Pulcheria called for a council in Chalcedon and it was held there in 451. 630 bishops attended the, to invalidate the robber council of Ephesus, which we'll talk about some other time. They had like done another council in there that's not one of the seven ecumenical councils. And so they met and the 630 got together to say, that council you did is not ecumenical. It's not the true teaching. So it's called the robber council of Ephesus. They condemned Eutychian and Nestorian heresies, excommunicated diaphragmatic, Dioscorus, the Bishop of Alexandria, for declining from appearing before the council in spite of being called by them to come thrice, thrice three times. The fathers accepted warmly the message of Pope Leo, which Dioscorus had abstained from reading at the Robert Council of Ephesus. And in the message, Pope Leo distinguishes clearly between the two natures. It's called the Tome of Leo. Emphasizing the presence of the two natures in one apostasis, one person. Two natures, one person. Jesus is just one person, the God-man, with a perfect divinity and a perfect humanity for his nature. It confesses the unity of the natures without division, without separation, and without confusion. This union is real and true in terms of essence and constitution, it says. It stresses our faith that there is one person, in Christ with two distinguished natures, the divine and the human. Among the most important conclusions of the definition that Christ is, quote, perfect God and perfect man, a true God and a true man, equal to the Father in the Godhead, equal to us in humanity, like us in everything except in sin. He was begotten from God, the Father pre-eternally, and in the last days he was born of the Virgin Mary, the Mother of God, according to humanity. He is one. He is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Lord who must be confessed in two natures. 
united without confusion or change, without division or separation. He was not divided into two persons. He's always been the only begotten Son, the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. So this Chalcedonian definition, the fathers of the council reemphasized the creed and they emphasized two other important things. The unity of the person in Jesus Christ, it's indicated that he is one and the same. The Lord Jesus is one. He is the word of God eternally born from the Father before all the ages and born from Mary in time. So she is rightfully called the Theotokos, the mother of God. They wanted to call her Christotokos, kind of like downgrader somehow. And say she was the Christ bearer. You know, Theotokos means God bearer. They were, sorry, they were trying, like people were like, just kind of like sliding her. Which is all a remark about what they thought about Jesus, right? Who did she give birth to? She gave birth to God. But there were those going around saying, well, Jesus wasn't gone, really. So we're going to call Mary something else. The second thing, the two nations of Christ sustained their properties amidst the unity of the person. The word became flesh, assuming all the human nature, except without sin, without giving up or abandoning his divine nature. Now, I think most of you have been through catechism or you've read a little orthodoxy or done a little theology. You're like, I know. Thanks for reminding us, Father James. But I'm vaguely familiar with, we make the sign of the cross with three and two. You know, the trinity and then the divinity and humanity. You know, that's how we make the sign of the cross, right? So we like remind ourselves every time we make the sign of the cross about the, the Chalcedonian definition from the Fourth Ecumenical Council in 451. Father, thanks, but we're up to speed on this. I bring it up because this is what we're still battling all the time. Like, theologically speaking, about who Jesus is. You know, is he a man? Was he tempted by the devil? Who was born of Mary? Was that like the, some human that was born and God kind of joined himself to that human for a while? Like if you stick with this definition, it like clears up all kinds of wonderment. We get clear-headed about it. We know who Jesus is. He's the word of God, begotten, only begotten of the Father before all the ages. The creator is born in time. I won't even bring up the Oprah episode where they couldn't figure this out. Okay. Except maybe I just did. But we won't go anywhere with it. All right. Yeah. Never thought I'd mention her name now that I've done. So here we go. All right. So let's return to our dear and blessed Saint Euphemia, the all-praised. Now we know about the work of the Fourth Ecumenical Council, or the, yeah, Fourth Ecumenical Council in 451 with the 630 bishops in Chalcedon. Let's go back 147 years. She's buried there. Okay, now we're back to the council, okay? When those 630 fathers of the Fourth Ecumenical Council met there in 451, with the support of the pious emperors Marcion and Pulcheria in the large basilica of St. Euphemia, the fathers had wanted to reject all heretical ideas of the Archimandrite Eutyches, who had been supported by the Patriarch of Alexandria, and as they wished to have a decisive and divine resolution, the Holy Patriarch... Anatolios suggested that each of the parties write down their own creed. These, both of these creeds were put into St. Euphemia's coffin and the relics of her. When the two creeds were put on her chest, the coffin was shut while the fathers went to pray. Eight days later, the fathers returned to the coffin. They opened it, and to their surprise, they found St. Euphemia holding tightly to the Orthodox creed to her chest while the other one was at her feet. 
Furthermore, according to our patriarchate, when the Holy Fathers took the two documents out of the coffin, all of a sudden, St. Euphemia stretched out her hand, took the Orthodox document, kissed it, and handed it back to the Fathers. And then it doesn't say this, but leaving a great impression on them all, is what it should say, you know? <laughs> like, we're gonna go with this one, you know? We thought this was right, this is the right one. The fathers of the council wrote a letter to St. Leo I and said, St. Euphemia received from us the dogmatic definition and handed it down to her bridegroom through both the emperor and the empress so as to emphasize that it is what she believes in. In this way, she confirmed by hand and tongue the decree signed by all the attendants in the council. Whew. Like, in case there's any doubt, we got St. Euphemia on our side, you know? The gospel which we heard today, chosen by the Holy Fathers to describe the work of the Holy Fathers, inspired by the Holy Spirit of the Fourth Ecumenical Council. These fathers are really a light to the world. We abide by their teachings, which has been handed down to us. By their teachings, we realize that it's a real enlightenment, for it comes from the light that inspired their minds and hearts to write down the Christian dogma and to find the path to the kingdom of God. Let us be like them and imitate them. Let them be an example and be our model through Christ who lives in them that we might dwell, he might dwell in us too. You are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. This is a great expression, the light of the world. Without light, our eyes can't see, vision needs light. There's a sun which emits light because God created it when he created the universe. But the light man here is an additional, exceptional, and can reveal to us that man who can be seen by the light that comes from the inside carries God. You are the light of the world because God can be carried inside you. The Lord says, after let your light so shine on people they can see your good works and glorify your Father who is in the heavens. We are the means that can help others by the light that we carry to communicate the light that comes from God the Father to praise Him and glorify Him. And this is how we can live as a real family of God, as our parish. We're members of God's family. We're to love one another and serve one another and show the light of Christ. And if it weren't for the dogmatic teachings that have been handed down that cleared up the question and pointed us in the right directions, we would be stuck in an Oprah episode, confused. I'm picking on a particular episode, not like every episode. I haven't seen all of the episodes, but she had an episode where they were trying to hammer out if Jesus could have sinned or not, and if he sinned or not. And they had a panel, two like Bible-believing, this was a long time ago, two Bible-believing guys, like, you know, Protestant ministers, we're all Bible believers, you know what I mean. And then a Catholic priest and like a Methodist, Methodist, Methodist minister. And they had a Greek priest that didn't make the panel because his flight was delayed. They put him in the audience and they let him speak. He cleared it all up. He went back to the 451. He went back to the Fourth Ecumenical Council and talked about the two natures of Christ. It was incredible. It was like it was like reading the like canons. It's like the description from 451, and it was happening on daytime TV. They were trying to figure this out. 
So thanks be to God that the dogmatic definitions have been handed down. The light of Christ shines on his church at this moment in the hearts of the people here present. Those absent for reasonable cause or just absent, whatever it is. And to come to communion today, when we do those two prayers of confession where we say we're the chief of sinners, humble yourself, come forward and receive the body of Christ, the body and blood of Christ. Unto the remission of sins, unto life everlasting, unto the healing of our souls and bodies. You know, we don't need to like worry about some of these things. They've been cleared up and we live in them when we live in the church that Christ is God, the word, you know, and that she gave birth to God, the word, you know, the Theotokos, nothing less. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.